Now listen to another story. A certain landowner planted a vineyard, built a wall around it, dug a pit for pressing out the grape juice, and built a lookout tower. Then he leased the vineyard to tenant farmers and moved to another country. At the time of the grape harvest, he sent his servants to collect his share of the crop. But the farmers grabbed his servants, beat one, killed one, and stoned another. So the landowner sent a larger group of his servants to collect for him, but the results were the same. Finally, the owner sent his son, thinking, surely they will respect my son. But when the tenant farmers saw his son coming, they said to one another, here comes the heir to this estate. Come, let's kill him and get the estate for ourselves, because that's totally how real estate works. So they grabbed him, dragged him out of the vineyard, and murdered him. When the owner of the vineyard returned, Jesus asked, what do you think he will do to those farmers? The religious leaders replied, he will put the wicked men to a horrible death and lease the vineyard to others who will give him his share of the crop after each harvest. Then Jesus asked them, don't you ever read this in the scriptures? The stone that the builders rejected has now become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing, and it is wonderful to see. I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a nation that will produce the proper fruit. Anyone who stumbles over that stone will be broken to pieces, and it will crush anyone it falls on. When the leading priests and Pharisees heard this parable, they realized he was telling the story against them. They were the wicked farmers. They wanted to arrest him, but they were afraid of the crowds who considered Jesus to be a prophet. Well, good morning, church. What a positive note to end our scripture reading, right? They wanted to arrest Jesus, but they couldn't because they were afraid. Well, hey, I want to say a special welcome to any guests that are here with us today. We're so thrilled that you have come and spent time worshiping with us today. We are in a series over the past couple of weeks where we've been talking about these parables of Jesus, especially the ones found in Matthew's gospel. And a lot of them in Matthew's gospel kind of end on this sour note where Jesus is like trying to make a point and he maybe uh, takes it a little too far. It's kind of how we read that. You know, it's like, Jesus, whoa, don't be such a downer. Uh, it's kind of harsh. It's kind of harsh to hear you say these kinds of things. But when Jesus tells these parables, he wants us to know how serious he is about the kingdom of God, about the kingdom of heaven. And so this is no laughing matter. This is no joke. He tells these stories for a reason. And this story today is no different. But before we really dive into that, uh, I want to mention that next week, uh, this is going to be so cool, you guys. Next week, this stage, I don't even know if there's going to be room for me to stand up here. Because Ruthann has organized this backpack donation drive that we're going to be participating in as a church. And this stage is going to be filled with backpacks. It's going to be filled with school supplies. And so next week, what we need you to do is come uh, ready to take one of these backpacks with you, uh, do some school shopping, and then return it back to us so that we can donate it. I think Ruthann has uh, 250 backpacks uh, that her goal is for this church to uh, fill these backpacks with school supplies so that we can give them uh, to uh, kids who go to a Title I school here in Dallas, and it'll be an opportunity for them to have uh, school supplies for this year. And so I'm really excited about it. I hope that you'll join me in getting excited about it. And now, just because I've told you uh, what's coming next week does not mean that you get a free pass and get to skip so that you don't have to do the backpack drive. 
Uh, I told you there's 250 backpacks, and if you look around the room, there's not 250 people in here. So we're going to need each and every one of us in order to be able to do this. So I'm really excited about it, and I hope that you'll join me in getting excited for that. And there'll be more instructions next week. If you have questions, there's some information in the bulletin that you can check out, or you can call the office and uh, talk to one of us about it. Okay, so let's dive into this parable. Let's think about this parable. Uh, Because this parable, and even the parable that John Mark preached about last week, the parable of the two sons, these parables at their heart are asking a question. These parables are asking the question, who is doing the will of God? And as we read in today's parable, this parable is particularly told to the chief priests, the Pharisees, the religious rulers and leaders. And the the answer that Jesus gives, actually he convinces them to give the answer for him, is that they are not the ones doing the will of God. And so by the end of the story, they're mad. They want to catch Jesus, they want to arrest him, because he has just convinced them, he's forced them to say that they are not the ones doing the will of God. And that's a really important question for this parable today, uh, even for the parable last week about the parable of the two sons. Who is doing the will of God? And Jesus wants to come to some kind of answer about this. And so we're going to explore that a little bit today. But let's talk about some of the mechanics of this parable before we really get into it. Uh, Let's talk about the characters, because the characters are really interesting. I love the comment that Matthew uh, included about real estate, because this parable reads so oddly, and the characters seem to think that they can get away with things, that they can do things, that probably nobody else in all of human history has thought, I can get away with this. But they think they they can get away with it. And so let's start with the landowner. The landowner is an interesting character. Now, we had a parable a couple of weeks ago where we discussed a different landowner, and I just want to be clear up front that this parable today is not the same as the parable that we talked about a couple weeks ago. Uh, But in the story, the landowner, in both stories, both parables, we come to understand that who Jesus is talking about is God. And so this is a really interesting way of describing God, isn't it? Because right off the bat, at the beginning of the story, the landowner purchases this farm. He sets the the tenant farmers to work. And then what, what does he do? He gets up and he moves to another country. He leaves. My translation says he took a trip, which is a nice way of like dumbing this down and saying like he's out of town for a while. Now, I read a couple of commentaries, and, and they, they all had their own theory about how long uh, this process would have taken. Uh, but one of them said that the, the minimum, the minimum that this process of growing these grapes and of being able to harvest the fruit, the minimum to start a farm like this would be four years. So this is not just a vacation. Th- this landowner has gotten up, and he has left. And for years, he is away from this farm. And so you can kind of understand how these tenant farmers maybe would come to understand a little bit of ownership of this particular farm. The landowner, yeah, he owns it. Yeah, he told us what to do, but we haven't seen him in years. He's up and left. He's gone. And so now we're the ones in charge. We know what's best for this vineyard. We know how to, how to harvest and, and how to grow the grapes and the vines. We know what we're doing. And so uh, the, the landowner, it's really interesting characterization of God. Uh, he gets up and he leaves. But the landowner returns. And this is really important because really this parable that we're reading today is not so much a way of reading and understanding what God is going to do as much as it is an understanding of what God has already done in the past. So this parable, if we reorient the way that we understand time with this parable, Jesus is not telling a parable about what's going to happen in the kingdom of heaven. He's telling a parable about what's already taken place, what's already happened. So, uh, if you think of the, the story of the Old Testament, the story of the people of God of Israel, remember, this is a people that God has specifically chosen. Uh, he's called them. He's asked them to participate in what he's doing in the world. And over and over again throughout the Old Testament, they reject God 
they turn away from God. They end up worshiping idols. They, they, they fall away. They, they're, they're not doing what they're supposed to do. They're not listening to God. And so time and time again, they turn away from God. They ignore God to the point where God sends these nations to bring them into exile. Now, what the people of God understand during this period of exile is that God has abandoned them. They understand that what God has done is he has cast judgment upon them and he has left them in the hands of their enemies. And this is not mean or, or angry from God, but this is simply a natural consequence of their actions. And so when, in this parable, when Jesus says that the landowner gets up and he moves to another country, perhaps what we can understand, what Jesus is trying to tell us about God is not that uh, God abandons us, not that he leaves us, but that God returns to his people even when they continually disobey him. He keeps coming back, which I think is good news. Because have you ever felt like you've been abandoned by God? Have you ever felt like something has taken place in your life where it seems like God is far from you? In the story that Jesus tells today in the parable, God can't help but return to his property, to his vineyard, to his people, Israel. And so he comes back, and when the, the landowner returns back, he has this, well, he actually doesn't, he sends servants. He sends servants on ahead because he wants to remind the people, hey, by the way, I'm still the, the, the landowner. This is still my farm. This is still my plan. Remember what, when I started those many years ago when we, when we first began this vineyard? And he tells the farmers, he sends his servants, and we should understand that his servants are the prophets. His servants are the people who come and they present the people of Israel with what God is talking about, what God is doing, and he sends these servants. And what do the people do? They continue to reject God, the landowner. They turn away from him. They kill these servants time and time again to the point where finally the landowner says, surely if I send my son, they'll recognize that this is me. It's the landowner. It's the one who started this whole thing in the beginning. And of course, the tenant farmers take the son and they kill him too. Now, this is an interesting understanding of what's taken place in Israel and Jesus even incorporating what's about to happen to him into this story. Because remember, in the Gospel of Matthew, uh, we are in chapter 21. Uh, if you flip ahead a couple of pages, you'll see that the Gospel of Matthew is going to end in just a couple chapters. So Jesus is approaching his crucifixion. He's approaching the end of his life, where he'll be arrested and executed. He's approaching this, and so he knows that he is going to give his life in just a few, few days. But the tenant farmers, the people of Israel, they take him, they hand him over to the Romans to have him killed. And so, of course, in the story, we understand that God is the uh, landowner. He's the one who starts this whole process of, with this vineyard. And Jesus is the son. The prophets, they're the servants who are sent on ahead of them. And the tenant farmers, and this is a brilliant move by Jesus, the tenant farmers, they are the Pharisees, the religious leaders, the chief priests. When you read this parable, do you have any doubt in your mind about who the bad guy is in the story? Does anybody, have, does anybody wonder who the bad guy is? We know who the bad guy is. The Pharisees, they get the point immediately, right? They understand what Jesus is saying. They're, they grow angry. They grow defensive. And now they want to arrest Jesus because he has just, uh, just judged them. He's just called them out and said, you are guilty. You're culpable. And now what's going to take place next is that God is going to throw out these farmers. He's going to bring new farmers in. He even gets them to admit it themselves, which is brilliant by Jesus. It's brilliant. 
Now, in order to really understand exactly how the bad guys in the story, the tenant farmers, the Pharisees, and religious leaders, and in order to understand how they're really feeling, I want to read another passage of Scripture for us today. It comes out of Isaiah chapter 5, and I've actually asked Mary Hogan to read this passage with us. So if you've got a Bible, feel free to turn over to Isaiah chapter 5, but this, the words will also be on the screen behind me. And Mary, whenever you're ready, go ahead and read Isaiah 5, 1 through 7 for us. I will sing for the one I love a song about his vineyard. My loved one had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. He dug it up and cleared it of stones and planted it with the choicest vines. He built a watchtower in it and cut out a winepress as well. Then he looked for a crop of good grapes, but it yielded only bad fruit. Now you dwellers in Jerusalem and people of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more could have been done for my vineyard than I have done for it? When I looked for good grapes, why did it yield only bad? Now I will tell you what I'm going to do to my vineyard. I will take away its hedge and it will be destroyed. I will break down its wall and it will be trampled. I will make it a wasteland, neither pruned nor cultivated, with briars and thorns will grow there. I will command the clouds not to rain on it. The vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the nation of Israel and the people of Judah are the vines he delighted in. And he looked for justice, but saw bloodshed, for righteousness, but he heard cries of distress. Thank you, Mary, appreciate that. So this passage in Isaiah, I don't know if you noticed, but it's almost exactly the same story as the parable that Jesus has just told. He changes some of the details. He changes the way that the story works a little bit, but he's telling the, the, the Pharisees and the religious leaders a story that they already know. But the way that he tells the story in Isaiah, the enemies are outside the walls and they're ready to come and attack uh, the nation of Israel. They're ready to, to destroy this vineyard. But when Jesus retells the story, it's the Pharisees. It's the religious leaders. They're the ones who are now the enemies of God. We started today by asking who is doing the will of God. And the way Jesus tells the story, we understand very quickly that this is a very specific parable for a very specific audience and a very specific purpose. Jesus wants them to understand, and they get the point right away, that he's talking against them. So Jesus uses this parable, and he's using it as a, a teaching moment, an opportunity to confront the Pharisees and religious leaders with their hypocrisy. We talked about hypocrisy last week with the parable of the two sons. Their hypocrisy, the way they have turned away from God and ignored God. But Jesus doesn't just stop there. Because in the parable, he quotes a couple more passages of Scripture from the Old Testament, passages that uh, the Pharisees and religious leaders would have known. They would have had these passages in their mind when he tells this story. A couple of them in your Bible might have been uh, in italics, or there might be a note that says he's quoting these other passages. So really quickly, I just want to mention these passages, because they're really important to understand what's going to take place, what's going to happen as a result of the Pharisees and religious leaders, uh, of their hypocrisy. And so the first passage that he talks about is Psalm 118. And in Psalm 118, the psalmist cries out and says that there are enemies surrounding God's people. The enemies have come, and they are ready to attack. They are ready to destroy. And in Psalm 118, uh, they come to the city gates, and they're ready to destroy the city gates. The city gates represented safety. They represented the uh, solidarity of, the, of that city, that it would be safe, that the people who lived and resided within would continue to be safe uh, from threats, from enemies. And so they come to the city gates, and they're ready to destroy them, to tear them down. But all that's left when they, when they do this is this stone, uh, the, the, the cornerstone, the foundational stone. It's the only thing that's left when they're ready to tear these gates down. And so Jesus quotes this passage, and he says uh, that he 
he's reinterpreting and says that he is now this foundational stone, that what God is going to do is when the enemies, in the parable he's talking about the Pharisees, the enemies of God, the ones who are not doing God's will, uh, when they come to destroy the foundations of what God is doing in the world, that Jesus will stay standing. That they won't be able to undo what Jesus is ready to do. That Jesus will endure and his kingdom, his ministry will last. Okay, so that's one passage. Another passage comes in, Je- in Daniel chapter 2, another prophet. And in Daniel chapter 2, uh, the, the king of Babylon, uh, has, he has taken some of the Israelites, uh, people like Daniel, and he's taken them away into exile, and now he's started to have these dreams. And Daniel understands these dreams to be visions from God. And so Daniel comes before the king, and he's ready to interpret these visions. And the king has this vision of this statue. And the statue starts on top, and it's glorious, it's magnificent. The head uh, is made of gold. As you work your way down, uh, the magnificence of the statue begins to diminish. Uh, and so it's, it's gold, and it's silver, and bronze, and iron. And then finally, the feet are made of iron and clay, this mixture. Uh, and so the feet aren't very, uh, they're not a precious metal anymore. Uh, they've become mixed, they've become diluted. And so the point Daniel makes in, in, in the book of Daniel is that the head, the, the golden head, this is the king of Babylon. But t- after time goes by, different nations, different rulers are going to come in, and it's going to be a degrading. It's going to get worse and worse. Uh, the kings are going to turn and turn away from God. And, and so uh, the king of Babylon, and, and on down the line, you have all these kings and rulers, and it finally gets down to the feet. And when it gets down to the feet, you have another stone introduced into the story. In Daniel chapter 2, this stone comes and it lands, it smashes the feet of the statue. And so when Jesus tells this parable in Matthew, he wants us to understand that this stone is him. That the stone that the enemies of God won't be able to tear down is Jesus. But this stone will also undo the kingdoms of the world. It will undo the evil in the world. The people who have taken the Israelites away into exile, the stone will crush those feet. The only thing that will be left standing is this stone. And in Daniel chapter 2, it's really interesting. This stone grows until it fills the whole world. Okay, so why am I telling you this? Why am I bringing up these obscure passages from the Psalms and and Daniel and all these different passages that, that I've thrown at you this morning? The point that Jesus wants to make is that the kingdom of heaven is the only kingdom that can last. Not the kingdoms of this world, not the kingdoms of, of the religious leaders, not the kingdom of, of, of their religious way of doing things, not even the temple itself will stay standing. The only kingdom that can truly last, the only kingdom that can truly endure is the kingdom of God. And all throughout Matthew's gospel, he's been weaving these stories together, these parables to help us understand that the kingdom of heaven is the only kingdom that lasts. So today, in our world right now, for our purposes, how do we understand this parable? Oof, this is a tough parable to preach on. Let me tell you, I don't want to hear any emails this week. Uh, it's in scripture, I promise. When we think about the kingdoms at work in this world, and trust me, there are kingdoms at work in this world, what we need to hear today is while those kingdoms might be good, they might be just, we might even be living in them or participating in them, they are not kingdoms that will last. The only kingdom that will last in this world is the kingdom of God. So let me throw a couple of kingdoms before you this morning, just to step on your toes and probably to step on my own as well. The kingdom of me. That's a kingdom that is doomed to fail. 
It's a kingdom that will not last. And Jesus says, if we trust in that kingdom, if we rely in what I can do, what I can provide myself with, if we rely in that kingdom, the stone will crush that kingdom. I like the way C.S. Lewis talks about this. He talks about the weight of glory. And the kingdom of me cannot bear the weight of glory. The stone will crush it. Okay, maybe not the kingdom of me. Maybe the kingdoms of this world. And this is touchy, I know. The kingdoms of this world. Every kingdom in this world has always thought that they are the kingdom that can last. Think about them. Think about people like Babylon. And I, uh, Daniel, king, uh, the, Daniel is talking to the king of Babylon. And the king of Babylon thinks his kingdom is going to endure. It's going to last. He is the head. The head of gold, this precious metal. But eventually the stone comes and it destroys that kingdom. Think about Rome. The people that, that lived at the same time as Jesus. Uh, the people who had ultimate power. The people who ultimately will crucify Jesus. They thought they could take his life. They thought he, they could stamp out his kingdom. And yet we're still here today, aren't we? The kingdoms in our world, kingdoms even of our country and our nation, they're good things, but ultimately they won't last. The kingdom of heaven will. What about kingdoms of ideologies and ways of thinking? You think about our world today. Our world is so politicized. Everything has to be this or that, doesn't it? Well, guess what? The kingdoms of Republicans or the kingdoms of Democrats or the kingdoms of the Green Party or Independents or whatever, wherever you find yourself on the political spectrum, those kingdoms don't last. The kingdom of God, though, does. So Jesus, telling the Pharisees, the religious leaders, he says, don't put your trust in these other kingdoms. Don't put your trust in the kingdoms of safety or comfort, security, don't put your trust in these kingdoms. They will ultimately fail. The only kingdom that lasts is the kingdom of heaven. All of these parables together, they paint a picture. It's like a tapestry is being woven, and over and over and over again, Jesus keeps presenting us with more and more of the picture of what the kingdom of heaven really looks like. And so this parable today, it reminds us that the kingdom of heaven will outlast the kingdoms of this world. And as we've read through these parables, I hope that you remember that these parables encourage us to join into this kingdom, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom that will truly last, the kingdom of the stone of Christ, the foundational stone and the capstone. The parables encourage us, they invite us to live in this kingdom. And so today, as we near our, uh, the time that we're going to end our service, I want to put before you a couple of examples of ways that you have and are and can continue to live into that kingdom. And I want to encourage you and I want to lift you up because we know that this is the kingdom that lasts. Doing the work of the church, the work of the body of Christ, it's work that truly matters. And it's work that I want to encourage you to continue living faithfully into. So I think of all these different examples, and I'll start with one uh, afar and then I'll bring it closer to home. But I think of people like Henry Nouwen. Uh, maybe some of you are familiar with Henry Nouwen. You've heard his name before. He was a prolific author, uh, professor, speaker. He was an amazing help to so many people, to help them understand what it means to follow God. And over the course of his life and career, he continued uh, to, to climb the ladder of success. 
Uh, he was so influential. He was such a good speaker and such a good professor that uh, universities and schools, the most prestigious in our country, continued to seek after him. They wanted him to be a part of their faculty and staff to help teach their students. And so he continued to rise that ladder of success. But along the way, he discovered that as much as he enjoyed teaching students and spending time with them, that ultimately it was unfulfilling work. This ladder of success, always looking for the next thing. It was never going to be enough, he discovered. And so he gave all that up. And he went to live with a community of people who had mental and physical disabilities. And he spent the rest of his life living in this community, being a friend, being a caretaker to those who didn't have anyone else. He discovered that the kingdoms of this world don't last, and he wanted to be a part of a kingdom that did. Let's bring it a little bit closer to home. As you look around the room today, you'll look around and you'll notice people that maybe you know, people who have spent a significant amount of their life caring for someone, caring for an aging parent, caring for somebody in their life group or in their community, people who have devoted their lives, devoted time and money and resources to helping care for someone else. It's beautiful work, church. It's difficult work, but it's beautiful because it's part of a kingdom that will ultimately last. There are others in this room. There are others who have spent time bringing others who aren't a part of their family, who they have no reason to, to be a, uh, in community with, but they've spent the time and the effort to bring especially younger people into their lives, to try to mentor them, to try to help them succeed, to help to pass on something to them, some knowledge or information that will help them in their lives. And there are people in this room that have spent a significant amount of time, energy, money to do that. And it's beautiful work. It's not always easy. It's difficult work. But it's beautiful because it's part of a kingdom that will last. I look around the room and I notice a couple of our Friends Speak readers. Friends Speak is a wonderful ministry. I'm so glad that we're a part of it. And there are many of you in this room who have joined this ministry because you want to be a part of a kingdom that lasts. By doing something as easy as helping someone else practice their English. It sounds so simple. But I promise you, it's part of a kingdom that lasts. I could go on and on. I could give you more examples. As you look around the room, undoubtedly you're thinking of examples yourself. Maybe the person sitting next to you who's done something sacrificial. Done something that they had no reason to do. But they did it because of who Jesus is. It's work that's part of a kingdom that lasts. And so church, I want to commend you and I want to encourage you to continue to participate in that work. Continue to devote your life to a kingdom that lasts. Today, as we conclude our service, we're going to offer an invitation while we sing this last song. And as we do, our elders are going to gather around the room. Uh, they would love to spend some time praying with you. Maybe there's something that uh, you need some special attention and, and you want to focus on in your prayers today. They would love to pray with you about that. Not only that, but if you want to join this kingdom through baptism, I'd love to spend some time visiting with you down front and telling you what that's about and how we can do that. But church, I want to give a, a broader invitation during this time too. A difficult invitation. I want to ask each of us to consider the kingdoms that are at work in this world, the kingdoms that are at work perhaps in our own lives, the kingdoms that yearn for our allegiance to them, that yearn for our attention. 
And church, I want us, as we consider those kingdoms, to choose not ultimately to put our trust in them, but to put our trust in the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom that Jesus tells us will last. So please respond while we stand together and worship.